Thank you, Jason. Let me encourage those of you who are here as well as those of you who perhaps are listening via live stream to take your Bibles and turn with me in them to the sixth chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. I had intended uh, to give what is the essence of this sermon tonight in the Sunday school class, which uh, we had recently on the prophecy of Isaiah, but uh, intended to give this before I was rudely interrupted by that nasty malady which we refer to as COVID, but uh, happy to be back tonight. Let me encourage you uh, to hear the word of God. This is from the sixth chapter of Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Sabaoth. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tent remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth tree or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. All flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. Let's pray. O oh, Holy Father, 
we're reminded in the words of the psalmist that it is in your light that we see light. And as we would reflect together tonight upon the dazzling light which the prophet Isaiah encountered in this disclosure of yourself, that we likewise would feel ourselves to be overwhelmed and shattered by this vision as the prophet was, that we may all the more appreciate the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ in the giving of himself upon Calvary and for his mighty resurrection from the dead. Father, we thank you for him who loved us and gave himself for us. And we would ask, O oh Lord, that as we consider this portion of your word tonight, that you would be pleased to enable your people to hear more than the voice of a mere preacher. But we would pray, as Augustine would, that you would help us to hear the inner teacher, even the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Speak to us, we plead, O oh Lord. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now, I taught from this passage in the Sunday school class under the title, God the Sovereign King, but I wanted us to consider it tonight in light of what God reveals concerning himself with respect to his holiness. And we saw that this vision that Isaiah was privileged to see was nothing less than that of the triune God as he was mediated through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. For John tells us in his own gospel in chapter 12 and verse 41 that it was the Lord himself, that is God the Son, that Isaiah saw on this occasion. And in the last chapter of the book of Acts, chapter 28, we are told that it was the Holy Spirit who was actively speaking through the prophet Isaiah and bringing him to this discovery of the vision of the triune God that Isaiah was privileged to see and who was never the same again. He saw that he had come into the presence and the service of the enthroned one. Now this evening, I'd like for us to look together a little more at these verses under the heading, God alone is holy. <clears throat> and I want to begin with a question. I want us all to reflect upon this. If I were to ask you, what is the one thing, indeed, what is the first thing that God wants you and wants me to know about himself, how would you answer that question? What is the first thing? What is the one thing that God wants you and wants me to know about him? I suppose that instinctively many might answer with the question, with, with the answer, God is love. Surely God wants us to understand that. And it was, after all, the love of God which gave us the Lord Jesus Christ to come into the world and to be our Savior. After all, love is the fountainhead of the gospel. But is love the first thing and the one thing 
that God wants you and wants me to know about himself? And I would be inclined to answer that question in the negative. Not that you can divide up or parcel out the great attributes of God, for God is one in himself. He is essentially one in all that he is. You cannot parcel out God in any sense of the word. But the answer that the Bible gives to that question, I think, at least implicitly, is not that God is love, but that, first of all, God is holy. And the reason for this, I think, is because without understanding the holiness of God, you'll never come to understand or make sense of the love of God. Without understanding the holiness of God, nothing else about God makes sense. That is, will make God honoring sense to us. Holy is the name, you may recall, that the Bible most often ascribes to God. And we see here in Isaiah 6, the seraphim calling one to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I would add, as I mentioned in our Sunday school class, that this is the only triad which we find in the Old Testament scriptures. And it occurs once also in the New Testament, virtually the same. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8, where this angelic proclamation is virtually repeated. And given this reality, that the only two triads to be found in all of Holy Scripture are connected with and present to us this attribute of God, His holiness. And when the Hebrew language intends to emphasize something or to accentuate something, seeking thereby to stress its superlative nature to us, it does so ordinarily by way of repetition. And here is the only triadic repetition that we have in the Old Testament and occurs once in the New Testament. Holy is the name that the Bible most often uses to ascribe uh, what God is in himself. It is God's own way of drawing attention to what he is essentially in himself. Which is why we read, moreover, in Revelation chapter 15 and verse 4, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? You alone are holy. And it is for this reason, isn't it, that our Lord Jesus Christ taught his disciples to, to pray when they prayed, saying, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed or holified, sanctified be your name. Twenty-five times here in the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah speaks of God as the Holy One of Israel. And he uses that term even more often if you include with it the equivalent phrases and expressions of the Holy One. And the occurrences of this title are almost equally divided between what a number of critical scholars blindly speak about as first Isaiah 
chapters 1 through 39, and 2 Isaiah chapters 40 through 66. Or some used to argue for three authors. That's a bit passe now among the critical scholars. But I think that if we notice at least some 12 times in chapters 1 through 39, and I think it's about 13 times in chapters 44 through 66, that Isaiah speaks, both sections of Isaiah, of God as the Holy One of Israel. And this prophet's use of that title, the Holy One of Israel, becomes, as it were, the Isianic stamp of his signature upon the authorship of this book as his own prophecy. So what are we to understand that this word holiness means? We read about it so often, we speak about it so often, but what does the word holy actually mean? Well, to be sure, there are those who argue, and I add somewhat persuasively, that the root of the word holy conveys the idea of brightness. But they who argue that way do so by going back to an Arabic root. But if we stick strictly with the Hebrew itself, then almost certainly that word holy means set apart. That which is removed from the common. That which is removed from the ordinary. And it's a word that speaks to us regarding God's absolute otherness. Not first of his absolute purity, though that is an implication to be sure of God's holiness. But it speaks of him as being the absolutely other one who has no analogy, who is totally and completely analogous to no one and nothing else. You may remember in John chapter 17 in our Lord's high priestly prayer, as he prays in verse 19, he prays for their sake, that is for his people's sake. I consecrate myself, that is I hagiozo myself, I sanctify myself, I set myself apart that they also may be sanctified or set apart in truth. Now, he is not saying there, is he, that he's going to make himself more holy. After all, he was perfectly holy. But what he is saying is, I am setting myself apart for the special task of bringing many sons to glory. And at the heart of this word holy, then, is the word or idea separateness. God is uniquely the holy other one. And that is why you have these burning ones, these fiery ones, these seraphim crying one to the other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. But the question I want for us to address this evening is this. What does that word holy actually mean? What does it mean for God to be holy? And how are we, you and I, to understand how are we in some measure, in some finite, fallen measure, to comprehend that and to engage or interact with it? What does it mean for God to be the holy other one? Well, I think it means at least three things. 
God's holiness is first of all everything that makes him before us. Everything that makes him before us. He is the creator and we are his creatures. We all have a beginning in time. He is before time and beyond time. Whereas we are subject to the decay and the decline of time. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is contingent upon nothing and no one. We are contingent absolutely upon Him. And He is underived. We are all deride. We become whereas He alone is. And that's the holiness of God. We become while He is. But then secondly... Holiness is everything which makes God above us. Not only before us, but everything that makes him above us. And this is that by which Isaiah is overwhelmed to discover. Perhaps he knew this theologically and confessionally, but now he knows it experientially on his part. He sees the king. It is disclosed to him in this encounter. He is enthroned even above sinless creatures, the seraphim. And it is the enthroned other one that Isaiah is at one in the same time privileged and yet dismantled and unnerved to behold. Now, it is, to be sure, a vision of kingly sovereignty that he sees. God's holiness is everything which makes him above us. He's not only before us, but he is in every sense of the word then above us. It is the holiness of sovereignty, the holiness of absolute power, and the holiness of sovereign authority. And is it not fascinating that majesty is the dominant theme in all of the visions of God as he is revealed both in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Here is Isaiah. He beholds the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the seraphim cry these words, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now this vision that Isaiah is given to see, we see something of it as well in the story of Saul of Tarsus to which Dr. Duncan alluded to this morning in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Talk about a man with unclean lips. One moment he's breathing threats and murder against the church of God and the next moment he's on his knees saying, Lord, what will you have me to do? And there he is on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians and to bring them back to Jerusalem bound. And around noontime, noontime he sees what is described as a great light from heaven. And he falls to the ground and he is dismantled as a man as he encounters this vision of the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who are you, Lord? And he's overwhelmed then in the presence of this one who is altogether other than himself. 
We see the th same thing, moreover, with respect to the Apostle John in the first chapter of the book of the Revelation. He encounters this majestic vision of the Lord Jesus Christ and he falls to his feet as though he were dead. God's holiness is everything which exalts him above us. He is the king and we're his subjects. But then in the third place, and especially, this is where I want to draw our attention, our focus tonight. God's holiness is everything which makes him different from us. Everything which makes him different from us. We're told in John's first epistle that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Habakkuk 1 and verse 13, he is of purer eyes, we read, than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. He is, but the truth, you see, as it touches every one of us, is altogether different from that, is it not? We confess with the Apostle Paul that we're all con we have been born in sin or with a psalmist. And that we can confess with Paul that all of us have sinned and missed the mark, have fallen short of the glory of God. You see, our most basic problem is not that we are creatures and that he is creator, though that is the reality. But our most basic problem is that we are sinners and that God is altogether holy. Now, you cannot separate those two. But if you think that our most basic problem is that God is creator and we are his creatures, then the reality of the incarnation resolves that problem, does it not? After all, God becomes man. And he bridges thereby the great gulf. But the incarnation does not do it all. Rather, it is that first great step, as it were, to the cross where God in Jesus Christ does do it all, dying the just for the unjust. God's holiness is everything which makes him different from us. He is holy. He is uncontaminated otherness. Which is why when Isaiah encounters God, he is undone. Woe is me, he says, and in our translation, I am lost. I don't think that's a particularly good translation, I am lost. The word undone would be better. But I think the best translation is, I am rendered silent, altogether silent. I have nothing to say. This vision of God has rendered me absolutely speechless in his presence because I am defenseless. I have nothing to say. Why? It's because he's undone and he's silenced by it. Not first because of his creatureliness, but because he finds himself in the presence of the thrice holy God, which exposes him for the wretched sinner that he is. 
That's what God is doing in this passage. He is saying to Isaiah, and he is saying to all of us, Behold your God. See him for who he really is. And indeed, this is the great need of the evangelical church today, is it not? That we might, by the grace and the mercy of God, fix our eyes afresh in a new way upon God in his uncontaminated otherness in his holy exaltedness. We wouldn't be prancing around, you and I, saying, look at me. But the posture of our hearts before God would be like that of Isaiah. Lord, I am undone. Who you are as the thrice holy God leaves me speechless as a poor, wretched sinner in your presence. God's holiness is everything that makes him before us, everything that makes him above us, and everything that makes him different from us. Now then, where does all of that leave us, you and I, tonight? Well, it leaves us with at least two realities, I would suggest. It leaves us saying with Isaiah, Woe is me, I am undone, I am speechless. If this is who God is, then what hope is there for me? God is holy by nature and by practice, but I am unholy by nature and practice. God is altogether separated from sin. I am a sinner in every fiber and fabric of my being. I am a sinful creature, unfit for this fellowship, indeed unfit. For his very presence. No wonder Isaiah cries out as he does. I am undone. I am dismantled. But praise be to God. We see that the prophet. Is not left. In this passage by God. In that state. And nor does he leave those. To whom he shows mercy. In that state. For even as Isaiah is crying out, bemoaning his plight, his sense of wretchedness and helplessness before God, we read that one of the seraphim flew to him, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And I would suggest to you that the reason the seraphim takes that coal with tongs is not because it was hot. After all, the seraphim are the fiery, the burning ones themselves, are they not? But I would suggest he takes the coal with tongues because that coal was holy. Because it came from the altar. And then we read that, and this is the important thing I think we need to grasp. It's from the altar, the altar of sacrifice, the place where God makes atonement for sin. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. He has brought the blessing prepared by God from the altar of sacrifice and has applied it to this man of unclean lips upon his lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And what Isaiah discovers in this his moment of other undoneness is that this God who is thrice holy is also rich 
in mercy. Isn't that a wonderful blessing for all of us that God is rich in mercy, that this God who is uncontaminated holiness has provided by his mercy a way whereby he undoes the undoneness of sinners, your guilt taken away, and makes them fit for his fellowship, his friendship, and even his service as Isaiah is commissioned here. And what we see then in pictorial form in this particular passage is what the Apostle Paul so graphically sets before us in Romans chapter 3 verses 21 through 26 where God in Jesus Christ has provided a way to deal justly and yet mercifully in his love with the sin that he must judge and which he must condemn. For Jesus Christ is presented there as the propitiation for our sins, the one who covers over all our sins, who satisfies the wrath of God, who averts the wrath of God on our behalf, who bears our sins away in himself, and who provides us with a righteousness of God, which God can receive as perfect to himself. And in his own moment of need, Isaiah then discovers that there is mercy and forgiveness with God that he may be feared. The 130th Psalm, verse 4. He has discovered that God has found a way in the altar of sacrifice, which in all of its typical pictorial forms was pointing forward to the ultimate altar of sacrifice, the cross of Calvary, where the Lamb of God, the sinless Lamb, offered Himself without spot or blemish in our place and for our sake. And that is essentially what verses 6 and 7 are portraying for us here in the sixth chapter of Isaiah's prophecy. From the altar of sacrifice then, God sends forth pardoning grace to Isaiah, and he separates Isaiah from his sin. And that is what the Lord Jesus Christ came to do. He came to separate us, you and I, unto God. He came to make us holy, to deal with our sin, and to pay the price for our sin, and in so doing, make an eternal separation between our sin, us and our sin. Now there is, of course, a once-for-all aspect to this work of God that's not to be decided. And perhaps you say, well, David, there's not a day passes but that I sin. And I would respond to that by saying, I know that personally, and I know it perhaps better than anyone else here tonight. But I also know this, that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses me from all sin. And he has made an irreversible separation between me and my sin because we are covered by the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ united to him, as we were reminded very vividly this morning. 
The great work of the Lord Jesus Christ is to make a people holy, separated unto himself. And he does that by separating us from our sin. And he does that by uniting us to himself by faith. And that's why when you think of union with the Lord Jesus Christ, you must remember that it is union with Christ, that we are in Christ after all. It is Christ who is the focus. Christ himself is the Holy One of God who entered into the darkness of our unholiness that our guilt might be taken away and our sin purged or atoned for. And so with Isaiah, we need, first of all, to be brought to the place where we say, Lord, if this is who you are, if you are indeed uncontaminated holiness, <clears throat> then what hope is there for me? Again, the 130th Psalm, there is forgiveness with God that he may be feared. For it is the God who is thrice holy, as we've seen, also rich in mercy, who is full plentiness in redemption. And so it leaves us saying with Isaiah, woe is me. But then notice, secondly, it leaves us with a particular obligation. <clears throat> Think of those words in the first epistle of Peter where he writes, as obedient children, do not become conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now I confess that <clears throat> I cannot comprehend that system to which some refer as new covenant theology, wherein it is thought or claimed that the new covenant, covenant is essentially different from the old covenant. <clears throat> but do you know where, from where Peter drew these words in his first epistle? You shall be holy, for I am holy. Dear people, those words come to us from the old covenant book of Leviticus. He says it a number of times in that book. The first occurrence, I believe, is in the 11th chapter of the book of Leviticus. Now you may say, what does that mean? Well, what I'm emphasizing is that the Bible, the religion of the Bible is one. And by the grace of God, shining backwards in history as well, it shines backwards in substance too. Yes, in substance too. That's why Paul can name David and Abraham in the fourth chapter of the epistle to the Romans as the great biblical examples of justification by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Now, to be sure, there is a newness in the new covenant. Of course there is. It's the newness of Christ no longer in the shadows. It is the newness of a Christ no longer in promise. But the Christ displayed, unpacked, revealed, indeed exegeted in substance. We see him 
in the revelation of the gospel. And you have the same idea here. You shall be holy for I am holy. This was God's, God's call to his people back in the days of Moses in the book of Leviticus. In that very book which is bewildering to so many of us. And you wonder what is taking place here. And what God is doing essentially in Leviticus is he is saying to his people, you're to be a separate people because I am a separate God. You're to be a holy people because I am a holy God. You're to separate yourself from this way of doing things and that way of doing things and this kind of agriculture and that kind of agriculture and these kind of clothes and those kind of clothes and this kind of food and that kind of food. Why? Not primarily because God knew that there would be better dietary blessings from this kind of food and that kind of food. If you take that standpoint, you're, it's to miss the whole point. God was teaching his people in rudimentary ways. In rudimentary ways. Read Galatians 3 and 4. In rudimentary ways, he was teaching his people, you're to be separate because I am separate. You're to be holy because I am holy. Holiness is the family likeness, God is saying. The gospel comes to us to make us like our Savior, the Holy One Himself. You see, the gospel is a dynamic. It is a power. And as God's children, you and I are called to live differently from the world. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. That's universal obedience, as the old theologians told us. We're being summoned, you and I, in the grace of the gospel to live separated lives. Now the question we need to ask ourselves as I try to draw this to a close is what will that look like? What will a separated life look like? What does a life separated from sin look like? Dear people, it looks like Jesus Christ. It looks like the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what is God's great predestinating purpose for the people of God? To be conformed to the image of His Son. God is calling us to look like the Lord Jesus Christ. And is, there is, if there is no likeness to Jesus Christ in our lives, can we claim in any sense or measure to be Christian? He looked like a man who made the business of his father the great business of his life. I love those words of the old authorized version. They put it so beautifully. Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business. Luke 2 verse 49. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ was holy. And the amazing thing, and this really is amazing, we read in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 10 that our Father disciplines us for what purpose? Well, he tells us for our good and then for what reason? That we may share in His holiness. 
So how do I become like Christ? First of all, by being united to Christ through faith. You read in Paul's epistle to the Colossians, and you see him speaking about life in Christ as a theme threaded throughout that entire epistle. In Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, he says. In Christ, all things consist, all fullness, we read, dwell in him. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Maturity in Christ. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 6 of chapter 2. So walk in Christ, rooted and built up in Him. But then Paul brings it to bear practically in daily life. And this is going to mean two things. There are some things we put off. And then there are some things which we are to put on. It will mean putting off the old man with its sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And if ever you were looking for a prohibition against the sin of concupiscence, there it is. <laughs> I mean, Paul gives it to you clearly. He prohibits it. You must disrobe, Paul is saying, all of these things. Do not lie to one another. Verse 9 of chapter 3. Seeing that you have put off the old self. Verse 10. And have put on the new, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Things to put off, things to put on. Verse 12. Put on then as God's elect, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. That's what God's elect people are to look like. And if you bear no semblance to that, my friend, you are not presently in Christ. And here's the thing, and this is essential. This is important. You cannot put off without understanding what it means to put off. Yes, we're to put off the misdeeds, Paul says, of the body in Romans. But the danger is we try to do that apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. We must, first of all, put on Christ. And is that not essentially what Augustine discovered in his own conversion? When we read from Romans 13 and in his confessions, we read that he supposedly heard the voice of a child saying, Tully leggy, Tully leggy, take up and read, take up and read. And what was it that he turned and read in Scripture? Romans 13, verses 13 through 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to satisfy the, grad, the desires thereof. And when God says, you shall be holy, for I am holy, live as obedient children in the context of the whole of what Peter is saying. He is calling us to live out our lives in union with Christ. God is holy. 
and his love. That is, to be sure, the fountainhead of the gospel. But it's a holy love. And it's a holy love that did not turn a blind eye to sin. That didn't say, there, there, that'll be okay. That's what some people's view of God is. But rather, it is a love that emulated itself on the cross. Because God is holy. Because he is uncontaminated otherness. By the grace of gospel, we can dwell with him in uncontaminated holiness. Because having dealt with our sin, we reflect the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters in Christ, pray for me. Pray for all of us on the pastoral staff. Pray for our senior pastor that we will be holy. And by God's grace helping me, I'll pray for you that you will be holy, that all of us may be holy, and that to the glory of God. Let us pray.